you're constantly being challenged. Every situation is different. Every personality type is nuanced. Yes, there are great and amazing leaders out there and certainly things that we can learn from them. But I think you also have to be open-minded to, you're never a finished product. You're just always a work in progress. Join us today as we speak with healthcare market strategist, and more importantly, a wonderful human being, Leah Fine, as we discuss the power of positivity, making sound decisions in high pressure situations, and her hopes for change in the healthcare system. Let's get started on Leadership Unboxed with Leah Fine. Thanks for joining me today. Of course. Happy to be here. Yeah. So walk us through what inspired you to pursue a career in healthcare market strategy? I feel like it's a place where I can make a difference. I think it's a great combination of my personality, my intellectual interests, and, you know, I'm most excited about seeing how innovations can further research and impact patients. And I feel like that's a place where, where I kind of squarely fit in. I think also the, the problems in healthcare are, are really tricky to solve. They're complex, but they're also really rewarding. And I like the challenge of connecting to the dots of understanding a role of human behaviors and searching for those non-obvious or adjacent solutions. So I feel like the the direction of pursuing a career in, in healthcare um, and specifically healthcare market strategy is really about figuring out how to bring solutions to patients. So I guess that's really where I wanted to be always was just being able to help people with new solutions. That's great. And along your journey, who's been instrumental in your growth and development? Yeah, that's a great question. I would say from a professional development standpoint, I had a manager who just has amazing EQ. And for me, I think solving problems from a strategy perspective or a tactics perspective or a content perspective, I think those are things for me that are more self-evident. I think the, the person who I relied on, this particular manager, she was like a people savant or like a therapist. And so I really relied on her to help me navigate a lot of those people issues. And, and the way that I see that is really about, when I say people issues, it's not really problems with people. It's more about how does one become more persuasive? How do you influence? How do you change people's minds? How do you bring people along? How do you get people to feel good about something that perhaps they didn't create or their idea wasn't chosen, but we're all part of a team and you have to feel good about the outcome and the contribution. And so it's sort of really learning the Jedi mind tricks skills of, of making people feel, feel good and, you know, about where things are going, about new directions, about decisions that are being made or about things that, you know, perhaps they might feel if it were out of their control or they didn't have input in. And so for me, I feel like you just have to be a lifelong student of building those people skills. And so she is someone, this manager that I had was someone that I just truly 
relied on to help me further develop those skills in a really productive way. Fantastic. Yeah, it's, it's, it's incredibly helpful to have people that can help shape you and create that, you know, you mentioned that sense of belonging, even in situations where an idea isn't necessarily aligned or not everyone agrees, but having that sense of belonging, how did you find your sense of belonging growing up? Yeah, I think uh, you can interpret that a lot of different ways. So I'll share a little bit about my personal background is I grew up in a large family. I'm one of five kids. So I easily learned to navigate a circus, but I also, I also felt like I needed to kind of chart my own path and, and really establish my own independence and my own personal compass. So at the core of who I am, I always knew that I was responsible for my own happiness and my own ability to find joy. You know, you can't rely on other people to deliver that to you. And certainly in the case of growing up in a large kind of chaotic family, you have to, you have to be able to jump in with, with the masses and, and, and enjoy that chaos. But also if you need something for your own self, you need to figure out how to carve that out. And so I think for me, that was really seminal experience in figuring that out. And I also always gravitated towards the things that, that I loved, whether that be academically or sports or different friend groups or different, you know, like I love nature, I love being athletic. And so those are just things that I naturally gravitated towards, even though they may not have been kind of part of my upbringing, so to speak. I always sort of live my life in a way where I'm curious, a little bit fearless, a little bit risk-taking. And so for me, I think that just sort of led me to a place where I found my happy and I found my joy. I'm very happy to hear that. And curious, how do all of those attributes, how does that shape your values and principles as, you know, you've led teams and you're a leader? So how does that guide your decision making? I think fundamentally, you just have to realize that we're all works in progress. I don't think you ever sort of achieve, you know, perfection in leadership or some defined way of like, okay, this is what A leadership looks like or B leadership looks like. You're constantly being challenged. Every situation is different. Every personality type is nuanced. Yes, there are great and amazing leaders out there and certainly things that we can learn from them. But I think you also have to be open-minded to you're never a finished product. You're just always a work in progress. I think for me specifically, you know, giving and accepting feedback is, is a very important skill to learn, both on the giving and the accepting side. I, I don't think, I think it's something in this study that we're not trained to do well. And very few people do that well, both the receiving and the giving. And so that's something that I'm very conscious about in terms of how, how I navigate the world. Along with that, because it's, it's related, is assuming positive intent. So I live my life, one of my values is that I assume people are by nature good. I assume positive intent. I assume that when people give you feedback, they, they want you to be a better version of yourself. And it's not personal. It's not meant to be a negative. 
I think we're all just trying to make each other better. And we're all trying to navigate a world that, especially nowadays, I think that is more culturally sensitive. And you may run into things that uh, 10 years ago, you may have said something that may not be socially appropriate now to say. And maybe you're aware of that. Maybe you're not. But just assume positive intent and ask for clarity and listen to how people feel today and, and what their lived experiences are and, and why that is something that's important to them. So I think just being open-minded and listening and building trust and seeking to understand first. Absolutely. So I kind of touch upon not only that collaborative nature, but trying to be more open-minded and inclusive in building that team atmosphere. Yep. Got it. Now, kind of shifting gears a little bit, you mentioned a couple of your passions earlier on. How do you stay connected to your passion and purpose in work? And how do you find that overlap? I think for me, staying connected to my passion is really about finding the energy that is validating where whether you're at work or you're amongst friends or in my case, like even within my athletic community, I think getting that positive affirmation and validation that you're on the right path, that you've accomplished something, that you're making progress is just energizing. And, and I think that's also one of the things that when I think about success within teams, I think one of the most important aspects of team success and inclusion is, is public recognition and acknowledgement and public things. And I think that's a really, maybe even an underestimated or undervalued or underused way to just motivate people is just publicly recognize them for the contributions that they're making. And that I think just keeps people focused, keeps people passionate, keeps people excited about what they're doing and keeps people connected to a cause. That's wise. Yeah. Is that kind of your philosophy for empowering team members also to take ownership of their work and achieve goals? Yeah, I definitely anchor towards that. And and it's a type of thing that could just be as simple as an email. Hey, thanks for coming to this meeting with these new ideas. Or, you know, I appreciate person X for raising that issue that we hadn't really considered earlier. Or thank person Y for their fundraising effort to support something that I'm working on. Or anything, where, whether it's an email, whether it's in a meeting. I think it just, it goes a long way to making people feel included. We actually, in my own personal family, when my kids were little, we used to do, we used to do family meetings at night and it was a way to just kind of contain the chaos. I only have two kids, but somehow it was always chaotic. Two kids, two working parents. And we would always end our meeting with them, thanks and appreciations. And sometimes they would be silly and fun, but it sort of builds that habit of, recognition that I think is really important. Yeah, that's a good practice. I think that sometimes we get stuck in the rat race or just the momentum that is life and we forget to take a moment to give thanks and provide a little bit of gratitude and put that into the universe as well. So thanks yeah, for saying that. Yeah, it's an it's important. And sometimes what was silly, especially with like the little kids, you know, 
they would say thank you for like just the the day-to-day stuff like thank you mom that I have clean underwear and thank you mom that there's food on the table or thank you dad for taking me to baseball practice or whatever and these are just your sort of everyday things but it's the everyday things that sort of add up to create someone positive experience and association and and those fond memories that's right yeah thanks for sharing that now, I know we've talked a lot about, we focused a lot more on what motivates, how to empower teams, how do we get from point A to point B, but there are going to be times when it's not always a linear path and there's going to be times when there are challenges or hurdles. So in those trying times when you have to come up with a decision in a high pressure situation, what steps do you take to ensure that your decisions are sound? and sustainable? I think there are two fundamental components to making decisions in, let's say, high pressure or high emotion environments. I think oftentimes high pressure environments are really high emotion environments. And so I think the two things are you have to know your process and you have to know your values. And so good organizations will have decision-making processes. And if you consistently follow those processes and adhere to those processes, there are expectations set from just having consistency and methodology. And so people, in a sense, will not feel blindsided. And it's okay to not agree with the decision, but then they can step back and say, followed the process and this is what the team agreed upon. And even though I don't agree with that outcome, the process was visible, the process was transparent, and I saw people weigh in and I saw it debated. So I think having that process is really, um, when consistently applied, incredibly valuable. And then the other piece of that is, are the values. So your values guide your decision-making process. And so what are your values around? Like those are typically set by the organization? Are your values around patients and people first? Are your values around doing what's best for the organization? Are your values around, and maybe for some organizations, are your values around what's best for the shareholders? So understanding what those values are and applying them and applying your values in a consistent way too. Some people don't apply their values consistently and that, that also creates distrust So I think by being transparent, sharing the process, sharing the struggle, and then really owning and communicating about that decision, I think really helps to foster and build trust. Because if you don't, even among the people who weren't part of the decision-making process, if you don't then share the outcome and the methodology and the process and the values of how you got to that decision, the absence of explaining that people will then form their own narrative and their own stories about what would happen. And I think your role as a leader is to own that narrative. And even among the people who aren't in the team making that decision or aren't in the cohort making decision, I think it's imperative to communicate that methodology and those values and the discussion that happened and how you landed on that decision. And again, that just that just engenders trust and 
you know, people feel inspired by that. And they want to be part of those types of teams and those, those types of organizations. Right. That sense of knowing that there's transparency and knowing that there's some open line of communication in what's, what the process is, how decisions are made and the rationale behind it. It's incredibly important. Yep. Gotcha. Now we're going to shift gears a little bit, kind of talk about a little bit more on like the community side. You know, our healthcare system is broken in many different ways, fractured and many different areas. What's your take on the role of community in driving the change and impact within our healthcare system? Yeah, that's a great question and one that I really spent a lot of time in a way sort of struggling with. I think from a community perspective, people with respect to healthcare might feel disenfranchised. There really may not be sort of a mechanism by which people have a voice to influence healthcare. And I think even influencing healthcare on a self level or a family level is still very hard. If you just sort of peel it back a little bit, people have may, one, they may or may not be insured or they may be insured or underinsured. And so therefore that limits what healthcare they can even access in the first place. And so by design, people are already self-disenfranchised. And so in a sense, because healthcare is such an essential component to, to human existence, it almost feels like people intrinsically have to optimize for the self first, perhaps before they think about community. And when you think about maybe community or public health, I think the pandemic is a really interesting case study. Because if you look at how people responded to the pandemic, there was like a group of people that optimized for self. And then there are other people who optimized and saw it through the lens of community and public health. And, and there we saw it. We all witnessed what that all looked like, where some people were like, I don't want to ask or I don't want to be told what to do because I'm making a decision for myself. And then other people and I'm not trying to judge per se either either outcome, but then other people truly responded from the, the perspective of we have to keep each other safe. We're only as safe as we can keep each other as, as a society and as a community. And, and so I think there are, I think that the nature of, and perhaps maybe it's culture in the U.S. and the nature of how in, structurally embedded our healthcare system is, I actually think contributed to that entrenched self-perspective because at the end of the day, we have a healthcare system that really is about optimizing for the self. So going back to your question, what is the role of community in driving change? I think there is a place for community to drive change. I think Sadly, it's, it's really challenging because of how we're structured here. What I think is possible is that you see pockets of community that can have a lot of power and influence. And so 
I think great examples of pockets of community would be during the 80s and 90s, during the HIV AIDS epidemic. That was all community driven. And now today you have much lower stigma, lots of therapies and tremendous progress in healthcare for HIV and AIDS patients. I think mental health is another positive example of community-driven, you know, outreach around, if you will, normalizing and making it okay to talk about mental health issues. And that's something that I think perhaps celebrities or public officials can help, in a sense, lead from their place of power. Another example of would be certainly in cancer. And if you look back to the history of, of breast cancer and a lot of the targeted therapies, a lot of that was driven by the patient community. So I think there is a really powerful place for community within, let's say, a disease area or a segment. I think you can definitely make a lot of progress from patient-driven or community-driven within certain areas. And, and hopefully the role of community sort of from a public health perspective, perhaps there's opportunities to make dents in that as well. Yeah, I think you're right. There's something to local solutions solve for local problems. So building up that groundswell bottoms up can help drive some influence and some change. What about from the other side? So what steps do you think the healthcare industry can do to become more inclusive, accessible, providing the care that's necessary for folks? From a patient and physician perspective or a patient and provider perspective, I think we're seeing a lot of progress there. There's a lot more, if you will, compassion and value of just that human interaction and that human connection taking place. Again, a sticking point in terms of what can the healthcare community do or what can the healthcare industry do? I would really like to see payers take much more ownership of their role in, in the healthcare challenges that people face. When you look at patients, providers, policymakers, there's a lot of dialogue already happening among them. And the component that is missing is, you know, what is the role for payers? From a patient perspective, the incentives and the outcomes are somewhat misaligned and they're not, they're not connected to how people want to interface with healthcare and wellness and sick care. Currently, a lack of transparency within the way that the health insurance market is structured is very scary and very detrimental in the sense that if people don't know what things are going to cost or they expect things to cost crazy amounts, then it changes the way that people make healthcare decisions. So it's not even like, oh, I got screwed that my insurance company didn't cover this. It's way before that. It's people are making decisions about even accessing or entering a healthcare discussion because of financial toxicity and fear of being 
not being able to pay for something or being underinsured. And so it just underpins all healthcare decisions. And I think it leads to healthcare apathy. I think it leads to delays in screening and treatment. And, and it's, I think, why, why healthcare in this country looks like sick care and not well care. And so honestly, I think, I think payers are sort of a big part of the problem that, and they need to, I think they just really need to step forward and, and just be more part of the solution and part of the dialogue and just really listen to what the patients and the providers are saying. And even the providers, you, you see, especially in areas like, you know, Silicon Valley and New York and LA, like a lot of the good providers are exiting traditional medicine and going to concierge medicine because they don't want to deal with that stuff. They're like, I, I became a doctor because I wanted to treat patients because I wanted to solve problems. I wanted to connect with people. And all of this insurance stuff is just like a drain on me. And so I think there's just a lot of opportunity for us to rethink payers and what their role and responsibility is in improving the healthcare experience for this country. And, and certainly understanding from a patient perspective, how many people are opting out of healthcare right at the front end. You know, like you can look and say like, oh, you know, X number of people complain that, you know, the insurance, you know, insurance is a problem okay, or, you know, now they're paying $20,000 a month for these drugs and they're blaming, you know, well, insurance isn't covering it. And those are the people who are opting in. Like, what about all the people who are just not opting that are just ending up in our emergency rooms or ending up? late stage diseases. Or, you know, I've talked to families who are like, well, should I even bother treating this cancer because I'm going to bankrupt my family along the way and I'm going to, I'm going to be dead in two years anyway. And then my family will be bankrupt. People are factoring these considerations into their healthcare decisions every single day. And the fact that it's up front in that decision process, I think is something that needs to be addressed. Thanks for sharing that. You're right. The social determinants of health have a large role and impact on what type of care decisions are even made. And hopefully technology regulations and a little bit of restructuring of our incentives right now can help help doctors to operate at the top of their licenses and continue to do what they do best and what they trained for, which is to help patients. Yeah. And I think they, they want those patient experiences to be less transactional and less driven by a throughput factory model and really being able to spend time with people. But I mean, that's, that's why they're there. That's why they chose that profession. Absolutely. So Thinking about wrapping this up here from a human standpoint, how do we promote more and encourage more selfless acts of kindness and generosity? I know that sometimes we look at the news or we look online and it's a little bit grim, but how do we reinforce and promote more of the positivity? 
Yeah, it's a, I love this question. One, I believe kindness and compassion and generosity are contagious. So I think the more you put it out into the world, the more you create it for others. It definitely takes listening and perspective and a big dose of self-awareness. Sometimes, I think the times when we are less likely to be kind is when we feel stress or we feel rushed or we feel we're not being treated appropriately. And I think it really helps to just kind of take a step back and make the world less transactional and, and really focus on that human connection. What is causing that person to perhaps have had a bad day? And we, we all see this whenever you're in an airport and a flight gets canceled or all the flights get canceled and the poor gate agents, they didn't ask for this either. And so I think it's just really putting everything into perspective and really making that, that human connection around having perspective and being patient and listening and, and leading with phrases like, how can I be helpful? And sort of reframing your state of mind. And it takes, it takes definitely some self-control. It, it helps to the more kindness you put into the world, it, it just lowers the temperature, I think, a little bit. I think I do sort of, since you mentioned, like, you can look at the news and it looks very grim. I have this thing that I've been doing for, for a while now where I read a lot of news, mostly online from all different sources. And whenever I see like this amazing human interest story, it's the human interest stories can often get lost in the noise of things. And so whenever I see a good human interest story, I, I post it to my Facebook feed and I just label it the good in the world. And it just sort of creates that reminder of in all of this chaos and all of this stress and all of this entrenched tribalism. At the end of the day, just assume positive intent. There's still a lot of good people in the world, a lot of people doing some great things and, and just find that energy and be a part of it. That's fantastic. And I think that it was going to answer my other, my last question, which was around for folks who feel like they might be in a rut or feel like there's, it's just not going their way. Leaders of today, especially in this time, what would you say to keep that little bit of light shining through? I think definitely just connect with people more. For me, that was one of the key takeaways through the pandemic and, and through the last election cycles where people just want to be able to be heard and feel seen and feel respected and be shown some kindness. And I think we all, we can all do that in our own little day-to-day -day ways. And it doesn't have to be anything big or grand or on social media. It's just, again, how, how do you interact in your day-to-day your -day at work? with the people at the grocery store, with the people at the doctor's office, people at the airport. And again, it, it takes self-discipline and calm, but I think it makes a difference at the end of the day. You want to be able to fall asleep and say, okay, I brought more calm to the world than chaos. And again, maybe that's sort of the, going back to how I grew up in, in a world of chaos and just how do I find my calm and how am I responsible for bringing the happiness to, to my day? Fantastic. Thank you so much for sharing all of your thoughts. And thanks again for taking the time today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. 
We hope today's episode has inspired you to lead with empathy, empower your teams, and drive positive change in your community. Don't forget to like and rate us five stars and check out more about our guests at Unbox Leadership. That's U-N-B-O-X, Leadership. Join us next time as we unpack more leadership lessons. Keep leading with purpose.